So Money, episode 775, Kate White, former editor-in-chief of Cosmo magazine and author of the new book, The Gutsy Girl Handbook. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Forget lean in. How about be gutsy? Welcome to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Our guest today is former Cosmopolitan Editor-in-Chief and media giant Kate White. She is a New York Times bestselling author of multiple books, both fiction and nonfiction. Her latest career guide is called The Gutsy Girl Handbook, Your Manifesto for Success. And there are a lot of career guides out there for women these days, right? And we've read all of them. We've heard about them. The Gutsy Girl Handbook by Kate White cuts right to the matter of why some women succeed and others fall behind in their careers. It draws on great research and offers never-before-told stories from Kate's tenure as the editor-in-chief of Cosmo. For example, in our conversation, we learn why when we worry, especially at work, we give up our power. Kate offers advice on how to combat gender bias in the workplace and Kate's own gutsiness that scored her the head role at one of the country's leading magazines. In the current climate, it seems like a good time for a refresher on why it's important to have confidence and ambition in our careers. Careers give us a lot, including money. And if there's one thing that I'm reminded of more and more these days, it's that if I want to have options as a woman, if I want power and freedom in my life, I need money. It's important. Here's Kate White. Kate White, welcome to So Money. It's a pleasure and honor to have you on the show. Great to be here. Many of us know you as the former editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan Magazine, um, a media powerhouse. You're a prolific writer. You're here um, largely to share the the great takeaways from your latest book, The Gutsy Girl Handbook, which I want to dive in. But you write all the time. I actually met you at an event recently, and I was surprised, though maybe I shouldn't have been, just the volume of books that you turn out, over a dozen or so fiction books, a handful of nonfiction fiction, prescriptive self-help books for career women. Um, you're a mom. I mean, I kind of want to get into the how of Kate White <laughs> later in our in our interview. But first, just thank you for being here and uh, congrats on the Gutsy Girl Handbook. Oh, thank you so much. It was really great fun to do. And it's been really an interesting experience for me to revisit an old book yes. and offer it for a new generation of women. Right. So that's my first question, which is, you know, you wrote this book uh, about 20 years ago and many women um, identify this book, the, the original, The Gutsy Girl Handbook, as like their manifesto a, a generation ago to kind of get uh, advanced in their careers and get, take control of their of their career destinies. And today in 2018, we have a whole new set of challenges 
what, what is the new frame for this book and, and how is it different? What are we still working on? What do we need help with still after all these years? Right. That's such a great question. And in the original book, I ended it with a paragraph that said, I'm sure this book will be obsolete when my daughter's in her 20s. <laughs> and th- that is turned out not to be the case. But I, it's not so much today in my mind, framing it in terms of Good Girl versus Gutsy Girl, which the first book did. It was called like Good Girls Don't Get Ahead, But Gutsy Girls Do. I think women today are far gutsier. They've they've watched what happens if you don't ask for what you want. Uh, but I do feel women today still make this mistake sometimes of hesitating, that they're waiting for further instructions or, or waiting for a sign that, yeah, you're supposed to ask. There's a promotion that becomes available and they think, they'll let me know if they see me as a candidate or we talk ourselves out of asking for certain things we want. And it's just really important not to hesitate, not to hold back, but to grab that wheel because no one's going to come right out and tell you, go do it. You have to be the one that initiates. It's tricky though, right? Because I'm all for being gutsy and asking for what you're worth and using your voice. But studies show that the perception on the other side of that, employers, managers, hiring managers, your boss, it's different when they hear a woman ask for what she's worth than a man. Using the same script, the same language, a woman can be perceived as being um, greedy or ungrateful or the B word. Um, So do you address that in the book in terms of how to, like, what is the... Gosh, how do you navigate that? I mean, it's your gender after all, and if if there's a bias, how do you how do you address that bias? Uh, Furnish, you're absolutely right, and it's not just the B word. Can I say it on? Yeah, absolutely. It's also bossy. That is one of the things Sheryl Sandberg's research a, a year or two ago showed that women who push for more money in a negotiating salary are are seen as as bossy. But what bugs me about all this research that's supposedly so helpful, hey, we just did a study that showed that you'll be (laughs) considered bossy if you ask for more. It becomes yet another excuse for women Mm. to use, okay, maybe I shouldn't do it. My feeling is if you read the landscape well enough and you pay attention to the people in the room and get a a bead on them and you present it in a way that's not emotional, that's not overly aggressive, but just very straightforward. I feel you don't have anything to lose. I know that job candidates who said to me something like, wow, I am thrilled to be offered this job. I'd love to work for you. I'd love to work here, but I was hoping for this amount that did not make my head explode. I was sometimes annoyed because they were going to get more money out of me than I had budgeted. But ultimately, when they started and performed great, I was happy that I had paid more. It's often, too, that that when you're negotiating for a starting salary, they are lowballing you. I asked a head of HR who I was sitting next to lately at a luncheon, how often are you guys lowballing? And she said, always, because they want to get the best deal for themselves. And when you don't negotiate a starting salary or possibly even with a raise, you don't negotiate, you are leaving money on the table possibly. So my best advice is 
go for it in the right way. Use your sense of the players involved to change perhaps how you present it. But I, I don't like this, all these, re, these studies that tell us and try to encourage us not to ask because of the way we'll be perceived. Right. We're going to think, well, what's the point? Well, and right. I have another theory too, which is that the reason, part of the reason why maybe employers get blindsided or whatever when a woman asks for more and it's kind of perceived as a negative or bossy, it's because we're not doing it enough. You know, if we did it as much as the guys, it would just right. be normalized. We need to <laughs> normalize it so it doesn't become this. This, this this outlier of an event at work. <laughs> Good point, because it does seem to come out of uh, out of the blue when the woman does it, and the more we do it and they expect it from women, the less it's going to be seen as bossy or bitchy or any of that. And so much of it is having a a tone of graciousness in your voice to say, "I'm thrilled to be." to be offered the job. I loved my conversations with you. They were terrific. And I would love to work here. But this is the amount I was looking for based on my experience and my skills. I hope we can do that. Don't hesitate to show your enthusiasm. It's really interesting. There's some fair, there's some studies that show that one of the, the characteristics that um, interviewers find as a negative and can often affect their their perception of you in a job interview is a lack of enthusiasm. And I know as a boss for many, many years that I love passion. I love enthusiasm. And too often because we're nervous or we think we're supposed to be cool as a cucumber, we play that down. And I think to bring up some of that into a salary negotiation to show how much you'd love the job. Not that you're being like this, hey, tough negotiating bitch there, but that you just want the best um, for you and you're going to deliver for them and you're going to show them what you've got. You also talk in the book, which I really want to highlight for listeners, because I felt it for me, it, it hit home. I worry a lot. I'm a mom. I, it happens. Um, but even before I had a kid, I think I'm predisposed to having more anxiety and worry over the silliest things, especially when it comes to my career. And you say we got to give up the worrying because what we are ultimately are giving up is our power when we worry. We can't progress when we worry and we give up our power. I thought that was a really important way to frame it. Yes, that was some very interesting research I came across by a woman named Nancy Parsons. And basically, when we worry, and studies seem to show that women worry more than men, we don't just worry in advance, we ruminate afterwards. And the problem with that is a perception issue. When we worry, we tend to put our nose to the grindstone to try to figure it out, to we get quiet in meetings because we're nervous. And it's read as a lack of leadership qualities, where guys, what Nancy Parsons found is they were more likely to speak up, ask for the resources they need, talk about the solutions they saw. And that just came across, even if it sometimes seemed like, wow, he's coming on strong, it seemed like he was in control of the situation. So it's just important to understand that worrying can become a habit. So if you try to shut it down initially, it's not going to grow. And 
there are great questions to ask yourself. What's the worst that would happen if I, if this comes into to comes um, to fruition? What have I done in previous situations comparable to this to show I could handle it? And just remind yourself that you are skilled, that you are capable of dealing with these things. And sometimes the worst that can happen is simply that your boss uh, has a discussion with you about it and you move on from there. When you were about to become the editor-in-chief of Cosmo, before you got the offer, I'm sure there was some competition for that job. I can only imagine. I (laughs) saw 13 going on 30. I know. (laughs) It's the dreams of many young girls growing up and women. What What was the gutsiness in you that got you that job? And had you stay there for, you know, 14 years and only leaving um, because you wanted to, it wasn't like they were like, oh, we're downsizing. You you wanted to go on to the next chapter in your career. Probably would have been happy to have you stay around, clearly because you were a great leader. But when you got the job, what do you think it was about you that differentiated you from the competition? Well, I would love to say that here's what I did. Here's the proposal I made because... That would be great to show other women, but actually the job happened because I got a call on a Sunday afternoon from, from my boss, Kathy Black, who's president of the magazine division saying she needed me to show up at the office. And my first thought was, oh boy, what happened? Uh-oh. Uh-oh, what have I done? And I, I was the editor in chief of Red Book then. And I thought, I'm not going to be the editor in chief of Red Book anymore. That's, that's something's going on. And she, I even said to her on the phone, you're not going to fire me, are you? Because just do it over the phone because I was out at the moment. (laughs) And she said, no, no, you know, I wouldn't do something like that. That was the kind of thing Cy Newhouse did. And so, uh, who was head of Conde Nast at the time. So I arrived uh, at her office, still bracing for the worst. And she said, we want you to take over Cosmopolitan. So boy, how, how to get a fabulous job without having to sweat it out, compete against a bunch of candidates, and even do a huge proposal. But the, the one lesson in it for me is that I started doing things when I was the editor of Red Book to sort of put myself out there a bit more. I was feeling restless. So, for instance, when I was told with a group of other people in the company as part of a management conference to come up with an idea for a magazine and present it, no one in my little committee had an idea, so I had an idea. And no one wanted to do a presentation, so I volunteered, I'll do it. And so I did this whole presentation on a magazine that uh, I thought would be good for women in their 40s and 50s. Not that I wanted to do it myself, but that the point was just get us thinking at the management conference. And when I was done, my boss, Kathy, put a thumb up in the back of the room like, yeah, that now that was a great job. So I'm sure it it was at a moment like that where she was starting to think of me in a broader, different way. So I think um, whenever you're competing, yes, there's stuff you've got to do in the moment to stand out. And you can't be afraid to have big, bold, even disruptive ideas to share, to show that you can think out of the box. But I think even when you're in your existing job, you need to be constantly reinventing yourself and showing the company that you are someone that is 
is is never just resting on her laurels. And part of at Cosmo being able to keep it number one was being a constant disruptor of looking at even successful moments and saying, we've got to change this before it's broken. I can remember actually had one opportunity to work with Cosmo in 2009. They reached out the editors and said, we want to do a, a big editorial spread around women who are in the financial reporting space because it was the recession. And, you know, there was a suddenly a lot of attention to business news and financial news. And I got to get my photo taken and dressed <laughs> up and they interviewed me. And it was, I thought, you know, honestly, I thought what a, what a compelling, not because I was a part of it, but I just thought it was really great for Cosmo to extend itself in that way. It was not maybe something you would think a magazine like Cosmo would cover. Um, it wasn't, it was sort of a, a different t- spin on covering what was happening in the recession. Like let's profile these women who are tasked with trying to make sense of it all for us. I thought that was really, really nice. But also I thought as from an editorial standpoint, like really sharp and really different. Cool. Well, I, I can remember that story. And of course, we were very interested with after that, uh, after that terrible financial setback for the whole country, what guidance can we give women because they were really feeling it. And the Cosmo reader, what I loved about her, she was such a gutsy girl. And she turned to us, not just for sex and relationship information and fashion beauty, but really how to live a fun, fearless life to the fullest. And and that's why I enjoyed editing that magazine so much. I've never met such a passionate reader, such a passionate young woman as, as the Cosmo reader in those days. I want to shift to your financial philosophies and experiences, Kate. But first, I tease it at the top. How do you, I want to get to the how of Kate Way a little bit, because, mm-hmm. you know, you, you lead a full life from what I can tell. You are a prolific writer. You've written volumes of books. You have a family. You travel a lot. You are out and about. I mean, I saw you at a social event. So clearly, like you make time for yourself. How, what Are there some rules or guidelines that you have, just like maybe from the Gutsy Girl handbook? What are some ways that you prioritize your time? That you try to be productive? Do you have some rules of thumb that you can share with us? The big rule of thumb for me is to put it all on my calendar and schedule. So even if it's social media, that's on my calendar because it's so easily for the day to get away from you. And that was something that I had to do at Cosmo. And I've taken it over into my life that does involve a lot of personal freedom right now. That was part of my goal of leaving to have more flexibility, but I still put it all on the calendar. So I know that every morning I have to be at my desk at 8.30 to start working on what other whatever murder mystery or thriller I'm doing at the moment. And then later in the afternoon, when my brain doesn't seem to function exactly the same way, I might work on different tasks like talking to a, a speaker's bureau about a speech I'm going to give or even working with a travel agent to figure out how I'm going to get there. So I save more for more menial tasks for the afternoon and use the morning for the writing. And and in fact, I think that's a really good thing when you're not, uh, when you do have a little bit more flexibility with your hours, find out when you're in the zone and when you perform best. There's a lot of research on this and a lot of people perform really good in the morning, but 
it isn't necessarily the case. So scheduling is really important for me. And I do work on weekends, but I try to make that pleasurable because it's usually working on the mysteries and thrillers. Which is fascinating. Where do you get your inspiration? Where do you draw that for books like, even if it kills her, (laughs) Um, (laughs) the secrets you keep, you know, like these are some intense thrillers on top of a a very, you know, full career. Um, What's your process there? Well, it's actually a process that you can use in business too. And a lot of writers have talked about it and it's kind of known in the fiction world, particularly in mysteries and thrillers you often use the phrase, what if? So you start with a little germ. Maybe it's even something I would see in in a newspaper and you start to play with it. Like, well, what if this happened? In a book I wrote called The Wrong Man, I played with the idea of what if a woman hooked up with a guy on vacation? What if they decided that they weren't going to see each other again? Uh, no strings attached. But what if he changed his mind and invited her to dinner? And what if she got there and the guy who answered the door with the same name wasn't him? So you start to play with something like that. And you can do that in business too. I mean, that's really was important for me at Cosmo. One of the things I began to notice there was how much young women read Maxim, uh, not so much now, but back in, you know, 2005, 2008. And I realized they loved the sense of humor that magazine had. So one of the questions I asked myself is, you know, what if we added a cheekier tone to the magazine to match where millennials were in terms of their sense of humor? So I think what if is a great way to go, no matter whether you're writing about uh, um, a serial killer as the the latest book I'm working (laughs) on is about, or if you're trying to generate an idea for your business. What if I'm writing that down? All right. Let's talk about your money mindset a little bit. We've talked a lot about career and time management and how to come up with your next fiction thriller novel. What about Kate White's money mantra? Do you have a financial philosophy that you espouse in your life? It's interesting you ask. I really do, but it shifted a lot since I left my job and moved into a situation where to some extent, um, my husband and I at our age were, you know, we're, we're both working, but uh, we're living partly on our investments. And that was always the plan. And my, my philosophy forever that served me so well, and I really owe it to my dad. From the time I was 22, he basically said, you need to take something out of your salary every single week and put it aside and save. And at that point, my salary was $135 a week. So it was like, well, I don't know how I'm going to get anything out of that. But I started with $5. And a year later, I went to Hawaii on vacation from the money I'd saved. So saving was so important to me. But today, being in a different place, my big philosophy is simply to ask myself about everything I buy. Is this purchase going to allow me to continue with a life I love, which involves living in Uruguay part of the year and a lot of travel? And if it seems like, no, you know, that's a pair of shoes that you really like the look of them, but they're not going to do anything to advance your priorities, then I'm most likely to turn that down. Was there a recent purchase you did turn down because of that philosophy? Actually, yes. I just saw this blazer leopard color. It was in a 
it was online. And I just loved the look of that. And I thought, I'm, I'm going to get it. It was even on sale. But as I thought about it, it doesn't fit so much with my lifestyle now. I was just craving it. I'm, as a former <laughs> Cosmo editor, I've got a big thing for leopard. Yeah. And but I passed on it because I thought, you know what, that doesn't advance what my priorities are right now. What was your introduction to money growing up as a young woman or, or even even earlier as a kid? Uh, curious, if was there a money memory that you had that was really powerful that has since stayed with you all of these years? That's really funny you ask because I was thinking about this very thing the other day. We grew up very poor. My parents were educated and great readers, but we were very poor early on. My dad had gone to visit his brother and my aunt, and my aunt gave my dad a little star that was a Christmas tree decoration, but it was one of those pieces of plastic that I think has phosphors in it. So if you hold it under a light, then it glows for a while afterwards. And I was enchanted with this as a kid. I was probably five years old. It was just, wow, I just loved it. And it was my first sense that there were things out in the world that weren't in my little family unit, possessions, that I could have access to somehow that would bring me pleasure. It wasn't something we owned. It was something that was given to me from somebody on the outside. And I was thinking about that the other day because I, I saw a similar kind of plastic that was glowing. It reminded me of that star. But I think that began to inspire me to the inspire me to one day reach for those kinds of things, to find a way to bring them into my life, things that were pleasurable that I could buy because of I, I had money to buy them. Right. And that it's such a dumb little story. And yet that star enchanted me. And I think it first sent me on my, my way to wanting to be able to afford certain things one day that would provide gratification. Mm-hmm. You know, they say money doesn't buy happiness, but I, I definitely do believe that the way that we spend our money, um, you know, first of all, you should be able to enjoy your money. That's a great goal, you know, to have, to be able to not just have a life, but a lifestyle. Money spent on experiences absolutely can lift happiness. And I, I know that maybe buying a sweater is not going to be long-term happiness, but if it's something that I want and it's going to make me happy in the moment, the price is right. You know, I feel like I'm going to do it and I'm going to feel good about it and I'm going to be happy in the moment and then maybe I'll forget about it, but that's okay. <laughs> I know what I'm in for. Right. I, I, I agree. I think money can buy happiness to some degree, particularly if you're buying experiences. And for me and my husband, travel has been a big part of that. I, one of the greatest joys of my life was going to Antarctica. And that has stayed with me forever. I just love to look at the photographs of our time there and remember it. It was just one of the most powerful experiences. And we traveled a lot with our kids. And that to me opened so many doors for me. And that to me could not have happened without money. It's interesting you bring up photographs and these days we're sharing so much of our purchases and our experiences online, whether it's on Instagram or other social media, Facebook. Um, our sponsor for this show is Chase Slade and they did a study recently and found that about a 
three-fourths, 77% of millennials. So, uh, you know, we're not talking everybody, but millennials made a purchase and posted it to Instagram in the past six months. This is like where they go to show off their goods. Right, Um, right. So the question I have for guests coming off of that is, was there a purchase recently that you shared with friends, either online or some other way, as a way to show your appreciation or excitement around something that you bought? I would say for me, and again, it's it's really probably stage of life thing for me. You get to a point where somehow something kicks in your brain where you stop acquiring and you start divesting. And I, my friends and I laugh about it because we, we, we bought too many purchases and we regret some of the stuff we bought. And now the things that I would show off and, on Instagram would be me cooking a fabulous meal I, I do a lot of cooking and I and I show a lot of stuff on Instagram about food or just being someplace magical. And that's what it's all about for me. So, yes, I am showing off purchases, but they're not so much of things. Yes, yes. I like that. You're investing more rather than accumulating, maybe even downsizing a little bit because you've given away, you've, you've accumulated too much. Yes, that's why I would say if someone said to me, and I was thinking of this when we, we, we have a home in Pennsylvania and we had to get a dumpster to start getting some of the <laughs> stuff out of there. Yeah. I just, I thought if I could just tell everyone one in their 20s or 30s, just ask yourself a couple of times, do I really, really, really need this? Because it was sad to see it all go away. Yeah. What was your so money moment, Kate? Like a moment in your career or your financial life where you felt, wow, I've either I've made it or I'm so I'm so proud of the hard work that has led to this point. One really great moment for me was when I was offered the job as the editor-in-chief of McCall's magazine and they told me the basic package. And I I had the opportunity to sit down with the two top guys, and it was owned by the New York Times then, the two top guys, and go over all the details of the package. And I had already discovered the power of asking and the importance of asking, but it still made me nervous. So I asked my accountant, Bob, to come with me and act kind of as my agent, which was absolutely nutty to do. But my husband was in TV news. He was an anchor man, And so I saw how great it was to have an agent. So I tell the two guys that we're meeting with that Bob is just coming as my accountant to help me review numbers. Well, we get there and poor Bob, he's so nervous. He's kind of dropping some papers and he's got that I think he might have had some flop sweat happening but he asked some good questions and the guys I could see stopped being dismissive of him and finally they said why don't we get up and give you two a chance to look everything over and then we'll come back and 15 minutes later they came back and they said have you had a chance to look everything over and we Bob said yes we have and then he said and now we're ready to negotiate and negotiate he did and he got so much more from me for me from that experience and I knew at that point wow it's all about having the guts to do this in the right way and later I told that story to some young women who worked for me at Cosmo as a pep talk about the importance of asking and one of them said oh gosh we need a bob and I said it's that was a fluke situation, I realize in hindsight, and even crazy of me to do. But it's BYOB, be your own Bob. You have to ask for the money you want and the opportunities. 
<clears throat> there was an interesting study lately, and I've seen it got it's since been picked up about how the glamour projects and jobs that help get you promoted, like representing your company at an event out outside, uh, like a conference or running a new team. Those are more likely to go to men than they are to women or people of color. So you have to raise your hand for them. You cannot wait for those to be given to you. So money and opportunities, you have to ask for. It's BYOB. Gosh, I love these tips. Bring your own Bob. (laughs) Oh my God. What if? Ask yourself, what if? Kate, these these are absolute gems. You know, your book came out. Uh, sort of like in the lean-in era where everybody was suddenly like women were like woken up to this importance of really being more proactive in their careers. And that also the good news is like we can have actually more of a say and control and power. Um, what's your take on leaning in? Like I know actually you covered this in your first version of the Gutsy Girl handbook. Uh, you kind of coined the term – um, I'll say it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no discredit to Sheryl Sandberg, but what is your general thoughts on that? I'm sure you get asked about this quite often. Well, I love Cheryl's book and she did such a good thing for women. But I would say we're at a point now where more than just leaning in, at times you have to grab the wheel. You have to not hesitate. You have to walk in there and say, I hear we're going to be sending some people to that conference. I would love to go. I sat at lunch next to a young woman at the Forbes Women's Conference, and she was with the sponsor company. But she'd only been there for a few months. And I said to her, hey, how did you end up getting the company to to?" let you come here so soon. And she said, I really wanted to come for this conference. And the theme of the conference, I forget what it was, but it was something that she could use to make her case with. And she did. And they were so impressed by the fact that she didn't just lean in. She grabbed the wheel and said, I would love to go to this. I think it would be very helpful for me, even though I'm new. And will you send me? And I think that is a perfect example about being willing to take that extra step. Don't hesitate. Don't wait. Don't wait for further instructions. Just go for it. I think one of the funniest things I ever heard was like, I'm leaning in so hard I can touch my toes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You only, leaning in only gets you so far because it's, yeah. it's, it's opening your mouth too. And it's pitching ideas in a way that doesn't show tentativeness and avoiding phrases like maybe we should or... I'm just spitballing here, or this isn't. A, this probably isn't a good idea, but it's really yeah. about presenting yourself in a way that shows your expertise and acknowledges that you probably know more than anybody else sitting there at that moment. Mm-hmm. And if you don't speak it with confidence, a man will take what you just said and say the same thing, and everyone will think it was a new idea. Oh, we have we have all had that happen right? again and again. Yep. All right, Kate, uh, let's do some So Money Fill in the Blanks. This is a fun way to end the show where I start a sentence and then you just finish it. First thing that comes to mind. Right. Oh, great. Fun. Okay. Um, if I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say you won, you know, the 100 million or 500, I don't even know what it is these days, jackpot, New York State jackpot. The first thing I would do is 
buy art, which I just love passionately. Oh, I would buy more art. I don't have enough walls <laughs> in my apartment, uh, which I guess is a good thing in, in some ways. But um, yeah, as I get older too, I'm realizing um, – the the joy that comes in investing in, and I, I don't really consider it investing. I just think of like, I want to, you know, spend a little bit more on something that I really love that's going to hopefully stay in the family. And then, hey, maybe one day the artist will get famous and I'll make it, I'll cash in. But well, yes. And that's what you discover. Some of the things I bought just because they gave me pleasure mm-hmm. have turned into be great investments. Yes. All right. One thing that I spend on that makes my life easier or better is... I only fly business class. Oh, you get to a point where that is something you you hopefully get to choose because it really does make travel easier. And I travel a lot for business. And it's just something that, you know, if you had to wait six hours for the flight, that at least when you get on board, you get a meal. Right. But even... To, to your point, even before you get on the plane, your boarding time is shorter, right? It's right. nicer. Maybe you get a little lounge access. It's, it's yeah, when you can do it, it is worth every penny. Absolutely. And a, a lot of times you discover the price difference isn't that much. Right. If you're traveling, especially last minute, I find that sometimes, like even on JetBlue, they have their mint class, depending mm-hmm. on like, sometimes if you're going across country, they do that. And the price difference in some cases only a few hundred dollars or a couple hundred dollars. So, I mean, I don't know. It's not for everybody, but that, that to me is like a no brainer when I see that. Absolutely. Uh, how about this? When I was growing up, the one thing I wish I had learned about money is... I would say that the importance of not just saving, but investing earlier. Mm-hmm. I look. I I am very grateful to the stock market. Stock market, and I and I I wish that I had invested in a clear way even earlier. After the recession, what was your gut reaction? Did you just stay the course? Did you double down? Uh, stay the course. Mm-hmm. Didn't panic in it for the long haul. Good. And it all came back and more. And more, right. All right. And last but not least, I'm Kate White. I'm so money because... (laughs) I believe it does matter that it can bring happiness if you use it in the right way. Thank you so much, Kate. This was a real treat. And everybody, Kate's latest book is called The Gutsy Girl Handbook your manifesto for success. Thank you for writing this. Thank you for all the great wisdom. Kate, we love you. Looking forward to your next your next step. Thanks so much, Pranush. And the next step includes murder. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> we, will, we will be looking out for that too. Uh, awesome. Okay. Thank you so much, Kate. Thanks again to Kate White. To learn more about her and all of her books, go to katewhite.com. She's also on Twitter at Kate M. White. Her book again is called The Gutsy Girl Handbook, Your Manifesto for Success. Head over to somoneypodcast.com if you missed any of this or you want to download the transcript or the audio or leave me a message for our Friday episodes. Click on Ask Farnoosh. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and I hope your day is so money. So money.